Imagine a man who was born a slave. He was raised a slave. He was trained a slave. And for 40, 50 years, all he knew was being a slave. And then one day he was set free. He was given his papers declaring he was a free man and he was a slave no more. Now imagine the same man, after feeling the freedom and the joy that comes from being set free, the next morning going back and doing the exact same things he did as a slave. For the same person, he did the same things, he had the same attitude, he did the exact same things. Now, if we heard a story like that, we would conclude one of two things. One, we might conclude the story was a myth, because we can't imagine a freed slave slave actually going back willingly into slavery. Or if it was for sure a true story, we would conclude that it was really a foolish decision and how sad it was for someone who had been set free to go ahead and willingly live their lives as a slave. But I propose something like that happens all the time. Not physical slavery, but spiritual slavery. That's not me. Jesus promised that he would bring freedom to all of those who believed in him. He said those who believed in him would be set free and whom the son set free would be free indeed. However, many who believe in Jesus never experience any real freedom from Jesus. The cross and their faith in Jesus is their emancipation proclamation, as it were. But they've never actually experienced the freedom Jesus intends for them to have. Sadly, many genuine disciples of Jesus have never come to the place where they experience the freedom that Jesus intends for them to have. As a result, their lives are spent in misery. Well, their Christian lives are spent in misery and defeat. Rather than their relationship with Jesus providing them with an abundant life and being a source of joy, it is a source of discouragement and frustration in their lives. Now, if this is something that you reckon you recognize in your own life, then I do want to say that there is good news, and that is God's plan for us as disciples of Jesus are far greater than misery, defeat, frustration, and discouragement. God intends for us to live in freedom and in the abundant life Jesus said He came to give. And a part of the abundant life is the true freedom that comes from Christ. But, as we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks, experiencing freedom, it starts by winning the war in our minds. We're going to talk about how to do that tonight. Open your Bible to 2 Corinthians 10. We're going to start reading in verse 3, or just verses 3 through 5. That should be on page 887 in your pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. The Apostle Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war, or we do not wage battle according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The title of the message tonight is The Battle for the Mind. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and what he has accomplished for us on the cross. We thank you, Lord, that 
that he came to destroy the works of the devil. And Lord, he came to free us not only from the, the punishment of sin, but Lord, from the very power of sin, that we could be free. We thank you that this freedom is a freedom that affects all of our lives. Not just our actions, but our desires and even our thoughts. So tonight as we look at this passage and as we look at what it means, we look at how to find this freedom, how to take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Let us be diligent to do what you've called us to do. Father, let us be a free people as you've intended for us to be. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or what you want done tonight. Have your way in all our hearts, we ask in the mighty name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul talks about spiritual warfare in this passage with the focus, the emphasis being on the mind. He says the, the weapons that we use in battle are mighty through God for the destruction of fortresses so that thoughts can be brought captive. So every thought could be brought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now there are basically two parts to the battle for the mind as the Apostle Paul lays it out. There are the fortresses that are built in the minds and then there are the fortress destroying weapons that, that tear them down and enable thoughts to be taken captive for Christ. Now to be able to fight and win the battle for our mind, we have to understand both aspects of that. So to, to recap, last week we sought to understand fortresses by asking and answering three questions. One, what is a fortress? Well, a fortress, as we saw last week, is a reason or a set of reasons someone can give to explain why a false belief system, a sinful action or a sinful inaction is not only acceptable, but correct. Right. So so every person who is either not a Christian or is a nominal Christian and doesn't live for Jesus, they have a set of reasons as to why they they don't live for Jesus. Every Christian who are professing Christian who lives a life of rebellion against God, they they willingly and knowingly and consistently do what God has said not to do. They have a reason why it's not only OK for them to do it, but in their instance, it's the right thing to do. That is a fortress. That is the arguments the Apostle Paul talks about in this passage. They have worked this out. They've built up this fortress in order to protect them from the knowledge of God, to protect them from the truth of God's word. And so if they retreat into the fortress. And if someone says, well, what about this? They they throw up their reason. They throw up their arguments. They throw up their answers and explain why what they're doing may not be right for you. Be sure of this. It is right for them. So we wanted to know why or what are fortresses. Then we wanted to know where do fortresses Come from? How does a person go about getting a fortress built up in their minds? And while there are many ways that a person can get a fortress, one of the, the main ones that we will see in our culture is fortresses are built in our minds when we hear God's word without heeding God's word. If you remember last week, I, I talked about the myth of neutrality. The myth of neutrality states that I can hear God's word or I can hear the gospel 
And I don't have to make a response. I don't have to reject Jesus, but I don't have to embrace it either. I don't have to do what he says, but I don't have to say, no, no, I'm rejecting Christ either. I can be in the middle. I can be Switzerland. And that's a myth. The Apostle John James says that we need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because if we just hear and don't do, we deceive ourselves. Right. And so what we do is we come up with a reason or a set of reasons that we can use to explain why our false belief, our sinful action or our sinful inaction is not only acceptable, but correct. Right. The word of God is not something that we can be neutral about. Jesus said those who are not with me. Or against me. The Charles Spurgeon said it this way. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance and hardens others in their sin. So what makes the difference? What causes the gospel or the word of God to melt some into repentance and harden others in their sin? The difference is in how we respond to it. Those who respond with obedience by hearing and doing, they're melted into repentance. And those who respond by hearing without heeding, they are hardened in their sin. So where, what are fortresses? Where do fortresses come from? And then what's the danger? I mean, I think we could always already kind of guess the danger. But the danger, as we talked about it last week, is the danger of a fortress. It's the raised up against the knowledge of God. And they keep people from knowing God and or living for God. Right. Paul said or yeah, Paul says in verse five that these arguments are raised up against the knowledge of God. No one who builds strongholds in their minds or allows strongholds in their minds to stay built will be faithful to Christ for long. The whole point of a stronghold is to keep them safe from God. It is to keep God on the outside and them on the inside. And the more we live in that stronghold, the further we are going to drift away from Jesus. And so anyone who builds these strongholds, who begins to give these arguments as to why their sinful action or inaction or wrong belief is not only acceptable but right, they will not remain faithful to Jesus to the end. They will, over time, drift away from Christ. Strongholds or fortresses are indeed very, very dangerous, spiritually destructive. So that leads us to the fourth question. How do we destroy the fortresses? This is what we want to know and what we want to talk about tonight. Paul explains that we have weapons against these fortresses. He says in verse four, the weapons of our warfare, they're not fleshly. Right. They're not carnal. Some translations, they're not they're not man made. In other words, it's not anything we can do. You and I on our own, we can't knock down the fortresses in our own minds, much less the fortresses other people build in theirs. The weapons we have are powerful, but they're divinely powerful, powerful through God and not us. And their purpose is for the destruction of fortresses so that every thought could be taken captive To the obedience of Christ. That's the purpose of the fortresses being taken down in our minds or in the minds of another person. It is so that our thoughts and thus our lives could be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. We the fortresses, again, they're erected to keep us safe from God. 
We want them taken down so that our minds will be taken captive to Christ and our lives will show that as we begin to live fully for Christ. So what are the weapons that we use and how do we destroy the fortresses through them? Well, our main thought for tonight is we use God's word to destroy fortresses and take thoughts captive to Christ. We use God's word to destroy fortresses and take thoughts captive to Christ. Now, there are two applications for this one truth. One application is for us personally, and one is for us as we seek to help others come to Christ, as we seek to destroy the fortresses in their minds and see their thoughts taken captive to Christ. Now, since we cannot win the war for the hearts and the minds of others without first winning the war for our own hearts and minds, tonight we'll look at the application for us. To use God's word to destroy the fortresses in our minds and to take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, we must first know God's word. One of the primary ways we fight Satan's lies, one of the primary ways we prevent fortresses from being formed in our minds, one of the primary ways we knock down any fortress that is already built in our minds is to know the truth of God's word. And I say this often because I think it's really an important point. We must study God's Word. But it is not enough to read Max Lucado or Chuck Swindoll or Francine Rivers or Charles Stanley or anybody else. It's not even enough to read some form of daily devotions. We must study God's Word. We need the pure milk of the Word. As disciples of Jesus, we must know God's word so we can use God's word to fight the spiritual battles we face, starting with the battle for our minds. Keep in mind, we're not just fighting for the hearts and the minds of the people out there. We are fighting for our own hearts and minds. How many people do you know who at one point were faithful disciples of Jesus and are not at this time? On this day, they have no concern. Now, they will still say they're saved, but they do not live for Jesus in any noticeable way. What happened? Well, many things could have happened, but one thing is sure. They stopped fighting for their own heart, their own mind. Fortresses were built and they drifted away. And if we are not careful, the same thing can happen to us. Any of us are susceptible. Any of us, given the right set of circumstances, can end up in the same place as anyone else we know. We always have to be on the guard for our hearts, our minds, taking our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. This takes diligence on our part. We must study God's word and be diligent about it. And this isn't just my opinion. This is what God's word says. Be diligent to present yourselves a proof to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now, there's four facets of this passage I want us to see tonight. It's that verse one. We are called to be diligent. Second, we are called to be workers. 
Third, we are to be diligent workers regarding God's Word. Fourth, we're to be diligent workers regarding God's Word so we can correctly understand and explain God's Word. That's what it means. Accurately handling the Word of Truth. It takes diligent work to be able to accurately understand God's Word. Correctly understand God's Word. It takes diligent workers to be able to accurately explain God's Word. It takes diligent work to be able to know God's Word well enough that we can accurately and faithfully use it to help us fight spiritual battles, starting with the battle in our minds. As Americans, we are exceedingly blessed when it comes to God's Word. All it takes for us to study God's Word is to grab our personal copy of God's Word in our favorite translation. Or open up our electronic device. Or go to a website like blueletterbible.org. We have God's Word readily at our hands. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. But do we take advantage of this? Are we diligent workers who study God's word so that we will know God's word and be able to use God's word to fight spiritual battles, including the battle for our minds? Now, there are many ways we can study God's word. We can study topics. We can study particular books of the Bible. We can study themes or we can read through it in a year. The way we study is not nearly as important as the fact that we are studying. I, I'm kind of, I try to be an organized person, so I believe it's good to have a plan. I do not believe it is a good thing to say, well, today I'm just going to open the Bible. Wherever it falls, that's what I'm going to read, and that's God's Word for me today. I don't think that's a good plan. I do not think that is it being a diligent worker. I do not think that equips us to be able to accurately handle the Word of Truth. And I do not think it will be able to help us fight and win spiritual battles, particularly the battle for the mind. I think we need a plan of some sort. Now, personally, I recommend reading through the Bible in a year. There are many ways you can do this, many plans for this. um, But we put one out every year. We have some in the Sunday school office now written by a fellow named Robert Murray McShane. Um, I don't know, from the 1600s, 1700s. It's a long, long used Bible plan. It is my favorite. There are two reasons I like it. One is if you follow this plan by the end of the year, you will have read through the entire Bible once. You will have read through the New Testament twice and you will have read through the Psalms twice. Second reason I like it is you read in four different places every day. So if you were to pick this up on January the 1st and begin to do it, Rather than starting in Genesis 1 through 4, which if you're going to read through the Bible in a year, you have to read about four chapters a day. Rather than read Genesis 1 through 4, you read Genesis 1, Ezra 1, Matthew 1, and Acts 1. Now the reason I like this, reading four chapters in four different places rather than four chapters in the same place, is because if you're reading four chapters and just going Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, on and on, eventually you hit First Chronicles. And and it's God's inspired word. But the first nine chapters 
in First Chronicles are little more than a genealogy. I mean, it is page after page of Abinadab beget Abinadub, and Abinadub beget Abinafred. It is just over and over and over and over. And very rarely is there any sort of like, there's like one part. And then there was a guy named Jabez and his mother bore him in pain and he prayed a prayer and then begat, begat, begat. I mean, there's just very little of anything other than one name followed by another name. Now, you may be more spiritual than me. You may be able to read that and find deep connections with Christ through that. I do not. I find it difficult to read that. I find it difficult in certain parts of Ezekiel to read the measurements of the temple that are given. I find certain parts of Leviticus complicated to read. And if you're reading four chapters in a row and you hit First Chronicles, you're going to spend two and a half days reading nothing but a genealogy, which, again, for me, doesn't really draw me close to Christ. The four chapters through the McShane plan is you read one chapter there, but you're reading three chapters in other places. So you're still covering everything. But then you have this other stuff that maybe can help you connect more. Anyway, that's one of the reasons I like it. We have it in the Sunday school office. You can find it on version. Uh, you can Google it and find it. I mean, it's there. Or you can use an entirely different plan. There is no shortage of plans. Part of, uh, if you have a Bible, I, I would, I would be surprised if your Bible does not have some sort of read through the Bible in a year plan somewhere in it. it it's just available. But regardless of what plan we use, it is tremendously important we have a plan. So that we can have a regular, disciplined, systematic study of God's Word. But I think it's even more than just making sure we read and study God's Word in a disciplined, systematic way. I think we need to make sure we're getting stuff out of it. Right? Studying is more than just reading. It is getting stuff out that applies to our lives that help us to live better for Jesus. And one of the ways to do that is to ask good questions of whatever passage of God's Word you're reading. And while, again, there's no shortage of the kind of questions you can ask and answer, these are a few that I like because I think they're super helpful. Right? One is, what does this passage teach me about God? What is about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? What does this passage teach me about humanity? Right From this passage, what do I learn that people are like? What does this passage teach me about how to live for Jesus? What is something that just stands out about this passage? And then since this is God's word, what is one thing I need to do in response? Now, what I like about these questions is they're one, they're easy to remember. And you don't have to have them written down. You can, but you can kind of remember that. But also, these questions will work with any passage you read. You can ask these questions of any passage you're going to read, and you're going to be able to find something, some way to answer that question, those questions out of the uh, answer out that out of that passage, those questions. And, and you could, like, if you're reading through the Bible in a year and you're reading four chapters, you could read all four chapters and then pick one chapter to answer those questions about. 
Or you could read one chapter, answer the questions, read another chapter, answer the questions. There's no shortage of ways to do it. The key is just to do it, to ensure we're studying, we're being disciplined students of God's Word. So that's the only way we're going to know God's Word, is to be disciplined students of God's Word. Doing this with a reading plan, to be a diligent worker, it takes quite a bit of effort and not a small amount of time. I mean, if you're going to read four chapters and ask and answer good questions from at least one of those chapters, it's going to be more than 10 or 15 minutes. You're going to have to invest some time in it. But the investment of effort and the investment of time is not only worth it, but it is necessary. In Ephesians, Paul called the Word of God the sword of the Spirit. It is our primary weapon for spiritual warfare. And it takes time and effort to master any weapon. And I have no idea how much time Roman soldiers spent trying to master the sword Paul was using as the illustration for sword of the Spirit. But I have an idea of how much time and effort American soldiers put in trying to master a rifle. You spend hours and hours and hours. You start learning how to shoot a rifle at basic training. And by the time you've graduated, you have shot thousands of rounds at thousands of targets. And then you go to your unit and you sign in and they issue you a weapon. And you go to the range the next day and you shoot hundreds of rounds to get that weapon sighted into you. And then at the first opportunity, they take you out to qualify with it and you shoot hundreds of rounds. And throughout your military career, you will shoot thousands and thousands and thousands of rounds. It doesn't matter if you qualified expert last time. It doesn't matter if you hit 40 out of 40 the last five times you qualified. When it's qualification day, you grab your rifle and you go out and you prove yourself all over again because it takes hours and hours and lots of effort to master a rifle. Mastery of a weapon takes time and effort. Mastery of God's Word also takes time and effort. And our willingness to put forth the time and effort demonstrates how important our spiritual lives are to us. It also determines whether we'll be able to win the spiritual battles we face, starting with the battle for our minds or not. If we will not put in the time, if we will not put in the effort, strongholds will form. And I'll just be honest. In light of this passage and what it means. If we're not putting in the time and the effort, a stronghold has already started forming. Because this passage is clear what we're supposed to do. And if we're not doing it, we already have a reason, an argument as to why our not doing that is acceptable and OK. And that is a stronghold. If we are not willing to put in the time and the effort, we will not win the spiritual battles we face, including the battle for our own minds. So we must know God's word, but we must believe God's word. When it comes to using God's word to fight spiritual battles, starting with the battle for mind, there is a fundamental question we have to ask and we have to answer. Do I believe God's word? Now, that may sound like a simple question. 
And of course, we know the Sunday school answer we're supposed to give. But is the correct answer we're supposed to give the right answer that we really do give? If we aren't, if we are going to use God's word to fight spiritual battles, starting with the battle for the mind, we have to believe God's word is true. We have to believe God's word. Knowing what God's word says does not do us any good if we don't believe God's word. Let me give you an example. Here's a quote. And I've used this before, I know, but it's a great quote. Somebody was asked about Jesus and he gave this answer. Well, I would say that if you don't believe, well, let me tell you the context. Somebody was being interviewed and the interviewer said to the person being interviewed, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those fundamentalist Christians. I don't necessarily believe Jesus is the only way. I just think he's a good way. To which the interviewer, the interviewee replied, well, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose from the dead and by his sacrifice, our sins are forgiven, then you're not really in any meaningful sense a Christian. That's a good quote. That's a solid statement. Could have been said by any conservative evangelical preacher in the world. But it was said by a man named Christopher Hitchens, an atheist who actually describes himself as an anti-theist. He didn't just not believe in God. He was angry at the idea of God. He knew enough of God's word and what it said about Jesus to correctly articulate the uniqueness of Christ for salvation and the centrality of Christ to Christianity. However, he never embraced this knowledge as truth. He knew the truth. He wasn't afraid to say it. But it wasn't the slightest bit of use to him because he did not believe it was the truth. Intellectual knowledge of God's word is not the slightest bit useful to us if we do not believe God's word. It's great and it's important to study God's word and learn what God's word says about everything, particularly spiritual battles we face. But this knowledge will not be of the slightest bit of use to us if we do not believe God's word. Again, I'll use the illustration of soldiers. If a soldier does not have confidence in his weapon, he will not be effective in the battles he fights. He will always be waiting on it to fail. He will hesitate to do the things that must be done. And that soldier will for sure lose the battle. It's the same with us. To say, yes, oh sure, it's the Bible. But if we don't believe it, then in a moment of testing, in a moment of difficulty... We will waffle and that waffling will cause us to lose without fail, without exception. And there are two aspects of belief that must be present before we could really say, I believe God's word. Before our belief in God's word or our knowledge of God's word will enable us to fight and win the spiritual battles we face, starting with the battle for the mind. We must believe God's word is right. Now, if we're going to say God's word is right, what we're saying is God's word is right, even if we don't like it. 
That, that can be hard. Because, again, maybe you're more spiritual than me. There are things in here I read I don't like. I find them too challenging on how we're supposed to live and what we're supposed to do and attitudes we're supposed to have. I don't like when Jesus said to turn the other cheek. I really don't. I don't like the idea of loving your enemies and doing good to those that hate you. Praying for those that despitefully use you. I truly do not like that. But if this is God's word, it's true. Even if I don't like it. God's word is true. Even if it goes against our natural inclinations. Again, I can promise you. My natural inclination is not to ever turn the other cheek. It is not to do good to those who hate me. Gosh. We're being perfectly honest. My natural inclination is not to even do good to those I just don't like, much less those that actively dislike me. And yet, if this is still God's word, God's word is true. Whether it goes against my natural inclinations or not, I have to say my natural inclinations are wrong. And God's word is true. God's word is true, even if it goes against what we've always been taught. Again, I can use those same illustrations. As a Ross, I can promise you, we were not raised to turn the other cheek. <laughs> my mom won't watch this, so I'll tell this story. Me and my brother had bullies in high school. And I kid you not, my mother taught us how to hold ever sharp pencils so that we could stab them from behind if they jumped on us. So turning the other cheek wasn't the way I was taught to live my life. And yet, if God's word is true, then what I was taught has to be wrong. And what God says in his word must be true. God's word is right. And what it says, regardless of what it's talking about. And it's just when we say God's word is true, we're saying it, it's all true. Maybe I don't understand it. Maybe I don't see how that could work out. Maybe I don't understand the numbers. Maybe I don't understand this or that. But God's word is, is true. Not only must we believe God's word is, is right, we must believe God's word is, is real. When we say God's word is real, we're saying that what it talks about is something that can really happen. I think for many people who are legitimately disciples of Jesus, things we see in God's word are seen as a a pie-in-the-sky ideal. Man, it would be wonderful if things were like that. Yeah, it would be great if there were weapons that tore down fortresses in the mines and every thought could genuinely be taken captive to Christ. But, but that's not reality. That can't really happen. Yes, this is a beautiful ideal, but it's not down here in the real world. That can't really happen. But what if what if what we see in God's word isn't the pie in the sky ideal, but it's legitimately the way things are supposed to be? Not only they're supposed to be, but that they can be. That, that genuinely every fortress in our minds could be torn down and our every thought could be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. And, and not just for us, because it's not just for us. This is also talking about with others. But that other people we know who have fortresses built up in their minds that through maybe what we'll talk about in a, in a couple of weeks. That we could be used of God 
to knock down those fortresses and see their every thought brought captive to Christ. What what if that's really what it's meant to be? What if that's really what it is? This is the reality of how things can be and should be. I really think if we're going to win spiritual battles, particularly the battle for the mind, we have to believe it's real. I mean, ideals, visionary type statements are fine. They're, they can be encouraging and motivating. But in the end, they have no real power to do anything. They're not exactly helpful. And in order to win a spiritual battle, we don't need a rah-rah speech like, take every thought captive. Yeah! We need practical things that can do that. And God's word, I believe, is the practical manual on how to live. It's not the pie in the sky that's meant to go, wow, that's awesome. Yeah. And just cheer us and cause us to be so filled, but it doesn't do anything else. I believe it's meant to be the, the manual, the guide that shows us actually how to live and what to do in the situations we face. Do we believe God's word is right? Do we believe God's word is real. These are profound questions. And our answers, our real answers, affect our ability to be able to fight and win the spiritual battles we face, starting with the battle for our minds. If we do not trust God's word, we can't or we won't use God's word. As I mentioned with soldiers, what will happen is if this isn't right and this isn't real, I will find an author somewhere else, right? Because whatever we face, there is a self-help book somewhere telling us practical steps on what to do. Now, many of those things can be helpful. They can have all kinds of things. But let me tell you what none of those things are. None of those things are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. None of those things can destroy arguments and arrogance raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Those are, at best, weapons according to the flesh. Carnal weapons. And if we do not believe God's word is right and God's word is real, we will resort to carnal weapons and we will fail. Always. Carnal weapons cannot win spiritual battles. Not the battle for our minds and not the battle for the hearts and the minds of others. If we are not convinced God's word is absolutely and always right and what it describes is the reality of the way things can and should be, we will not win. Because we will not use the only weapon God has given us. And then... We must believe God's word, must know God's word, believe God's word, and then we must obey God's word. Again, we're talking about this on a personal level. When God begins to deal with us from his word, we have a choice to make about how we respond. And how we respond determines whether we destroy fortresses and take thoughts captive to Christ or whether we build fortresses. And drift away from Christ. And as I see it in God's word. There are basically three possible ways to respond. When God's word begins to deal with us. 
There's anger and rebellion. There's apathy. And there's brokenness, repentance, and obedience. We see all these examples, all of these lived out in God's Word in one way or another. In the book of Acts, we're told the story about a deacon named Stephen. He's arrested and he's brought before the Jewish high council and told to explain what he's been saying about Jesus. If you've read the story in Acts chapter 7, Stephen takes the long way around. And he starts off about Abraham and he begins to tell them all the way up of Jewish history from Abraham to Jesus. And he ends by telling them they were stiff-necked and uncircumcised people who had always rebelled against the Holy Spirit of God. And the people responded to his message. God's word tells us in Acts 7, 54 through 58, they were cut to the heart with conviction. But instead of obeying God's word, they became angry at the messenger. They stopped up their ears and they stoned Stephen to death. Instead of obeying God's word, they rebelled against God and they rejected his word. They had no intention of doing what God had said in his word. Another response was apathy. We see this in the book of Ezekiel. Those who respond with apathy simply don't care. They're not angry at what they read or what somebody said to them from God's word. They just aren't affected or bothered at all. In Ezekiel 33, 30 through, 30 through 32, the people want to hear the message Ezekiel has from God. They gather where he's going to be. They listen to what he has to say. But they have no intention of obeying God. Rather, in their case, they just considered it to be a form of entertainment. As far as they were concerned, Ezekiel's messages from God were like performances. They didn't care what God's word said to them. It didn't convict them and make them feel angry. It didn't convict them and make them feel broken in repentance. The preacher preached. That was, that was fun. That was a good day. And then they went on about their lives. Unbothered, untouched, unconcerned. They simply had no care whatsoever what God had said in his word. And then there is brokenness, repentance and obedience. The best example of this I see from God's word is on the day of Pentecost. Peter's sermon. Church is gathered. Holy Spirit falls. Crowd gathers. Peter begins to proclaim the message about Jesus. And as he comes to the end of the message, Acts 2.37 tells us the people were cut to the heart just like they were later in Stephen's day. And they were brought with deep conviction and genuine brokenness. And rather than being angry at Stephen, what they said to him was, what must we do? They were broken over their sin and their overwhelming desire was to fix their problem. They were willing to do what God wanted them to do, no matter what that was. What does God want us to do? Of these three responses, only one prevents fortresses from ever being built in our minds. And only one destroys fortresses that may already be built in our minds. Obviously, it's the response of brokenness, repentance and obedience. There will absolutely be times when God's word convicts us. At times, we will be convicted when we read it. At times, we'll be convicted when we hear it preached. At times, we'll be convicted when we hear it taught. In that time, we will respond. 
And we will respond with either anger, apathy, or brokenness, repentance, and obedience. How we respond will determine whether we build strongholds in our minds or tear down strongholds in our minds. How we respond will determine whether our thoughts are taken captive to Christ or whether or not we begin to drift away from Christ. We need to ask and honestly answer questions as we close. Can we honestly say we are diligent workers regarding God's word? Do we diligently study? Whatever way we do it, you don't have to do any of the things I said tonight. You don't have to read the plan I talked about. You don't have to ask the questions I mentioned. But are you legitimately a diligent student, a diligent worker in God's Word? Do we truly believe God's Word is right and God's Word is real? And and let me say, I, I think in many ways, I think that's the key one. If I truly believed God's word is right and God's word is real. then I'm going to want to know what it says, right? I mean, I'm I'm going to study it. I'm going to dig into it because the answers to what I need are in here. And I believe it's right. I believe it's real. You couldn't keep me out of God's word if I believed it. At the same time. If God's word is right and if God's word is real, I'm not going to get angry when it convicts me. I'm not going to get I'm not going to be apathetic about it. This is the word of God. God said what I was doing was wrong. I'm not going to be apathetic about that. How could I? I'm going to respond with brokenness, repentance and obedience. So how do we respond? We do want to ask that as well. But the key question, the key question. Do I believe God's word? Do I believe it's right? Do I believe it's real? Because if I do, if I do that one. I'll do the other two. Strongholds will be torn down in my mind. They will not be reformed. And my thoughts will be taken captive to Christ. And that will be evidenced by the life I live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We thank you, Lord, for your word that guides us. We thank you, Father, that it is right and it is real. Help us. To believe that, help us to believe that in a way that it changes our lives. How we live and what we do and who we are down at a, just at a, at a molecular level almost, God. We do not want to be the same. Let your word have its work in our lives. Tear down any strongholds we have built. Tear down any strongholds we have allowed to be built. And take our every thought, our every single thought, captive to the obedience of Christ. And let the life we live. Demonstrate this. We ask in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen.